Hey everybody, today I have the amazing opportunity to have an intelligent, thorough conversation um, with Ms. Shonda Chapman Brown. Um, as many of you know, if you followed me at all and have listened to a couple of the uh, episodes of the podcast, you know I'm very concerned about issues that affect women and specifically um, like to drill down on women of color um, because there are nuanced differences, um, and some of them are not nuanced, <laughs> very dramatic differences between those experiences yeah. and the experience of uh, women who don't identify as women of color. So, Shonda, welcome to the podcast. Hey, hey. <laughs> Um, so let's just dive right in. I want to, can you give um, the listeners a little bit of, of back of your background in terms of being connected to those types of issues and the, it's the Vera Institute, right? That's right. Yeah. So right now I work as a lead program specialist at the Vera Institute of Justice on an initiative to end the incarceration of girls. Um, it's something that's really near and dear to my heart because I identify both as a survivor of sexual violence, mm. um, particularly childhood sexual violence, and as a survivor of the juvenile justice system. Mm. Um, in that same way, my the way that I came to the work, um, I, I describe as a really long and <laughs> windy road. I've probably held like, like any hustler you may know, every job <laughs> under the sun. <laughs> Um, like every job, like there was a time that I like, I worked at Shoney's, you know, I like, I made beds at like the Holiday Inn. Mm -hmm. I worked at an Indian television station, like literally you name it. I did that job. Um, but I was fortunate enough to have really good mentors in my life. And I had a boss who pushed me to like go back to school when I was working as um, an executive assistant and he refused to work with me if I didn't go back to school. So I ended up um, majoring in sociology at Hunter College hmm. um, and I started doing research. Um, and who would have thought, like, you know, the kid who hardly came to class or was likely to be at a party with your older cousin. <laughs> <laughs> I was there. Um, we were getting it in. Right. Um, that what I would do is uh, both quantitative and qualitative research. And so I ended up working for a number of research and policy organizations, and I would I would really often be the only person of color in the room, um, the only woman of color in the room, and would be working on issues that affected my community, people that I love, me, as a matter of fact. Sure. Um, and I would I was on the DL. Like I was I was low key in the closet about it. I would just kind of sit there. Yeah. And so I started to feel like a fraud. Um and I and more than that, I started to feel like, you know, the work that I was doing for not if was for not if it wasn't impacting the communities that that were important to me. Mm. And so I started to figure out a way that I could um make my experiences visible. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for people who were not not in the room and who didn't get to have their voices um, heard, but also for people in the room, you yeah. know, because they hold assumptions about people who've been directly impacted. People are survivors and they often think that their knowledge is, is primary, that it, um, you know, their way of knowing things is more important. And I was like, you know what, to hell with that. Like I should, <laughs> I have to do something different. Right. And so I, 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 um, I, 
connected with some people at the Center for Justice at Columbia University mm-hmm. um, who run the Beyond the Bars Fellowship. Um, and I was a fellow there. And then I've transitioned into a leadership role at the Beyond the Bars Fellowship at um, Columbia. And at the, I also did some work for Black Women's Blueprint and I joined their board. Um, and Black Women's Blueprint is an organization that works to end violence um, and sexual violence against Black women and girls. And they do that through policy, um, through direct services um, and advocacy. Av- so yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> that was, but it's good. So like in that same vein, like we're in a very interesting, well, what I want to kind of look at, like you have the, you know, the kind of deeply, um, like I feel like misogyny is so deeply involved in the American context and how people are socialized. Yeah. Like, Sometimes it's difficult to have conversations like this without people kind of going to, you know, familiar places. And I raised this conversation. I really want to get your take on it. I was talking about this to someone earlier. When people are having conversations around Bill Cosby, um, what people I've heard a lot of people say first is, why did it take so long for people to come forward? Um, You know, like you know he was getting rated by NBC, right? <laughs> and the other things that are like, in my opinion... It raises my blood pressure. Yeah, it's so, so this is a point I made, and, and again, I want to hear your position. I was talking to somebody about, because I had to explain to a friend of mine why it's so, it would be so complex. I said, so let's let's say, for example, you were working in the White House in the Obama administration and you've been working for Barack Obama for two years. And one day, like you're having a meeting, telling him about your ambitions and your dreams, your goals. And he's listening and saying, cool, like, you know, stick around. I'm going to help you to, you know, become that. Wait, did you say we're, our example is Barack Obama? Yeah, I have to. I'm, I'm, oh, no, I think we need another example. But it's really important to this point. Right. And, Okay. And so you're leaving and, and Barack Obama like gropes you or does something sexually inappropriate. I said, so think, think about yourself in that situation with the first black president of the United States who people love and celebrate and see in a certain way how they you know esteem him and look at all that he's done, you know, unblemished, so to speak. And think about you as a person having to come forward with that information what it's going to do potentially to his legacy as a president, as a person, as the first black president, um, how people are going to berate you, how they're going to go through your history, all these things they're going to do to you because most of them will not believe you. And I said, right. put that in context to who Bill Cosby was at the particular time where a lot of these, these allegations were happening and what people would have said. Now we're at a point now where there's me too, times up, all this other stuff 60 women have come forward in 2018, and there are still people saying, I don't know if he did it. So can you imagine what, what someone who didn't know about the other women would have been feeling in that moment at that time with that personality? And then my friend was like, right. I didn't get it. But now, you know, connecting it to Obama and kind of how people think about him, I, I understand that. So I want you to kind of talk. Or give your kind, your perspective on just we can, we can talk about Cosby like and uh, and R. Kelly because I want I want to really address both of them today. Right. 
Well, you know, it's funny because when you when you when you brought up Barack, I was like, oh no, brother, you can't bring up not Barack, not Barack. And so I was like, I, I was like, where is he going with this, Barack? You know, because that's like I would be I would be having a crisis of character. Like this, that's like Black Jesus groping you. Like, what do you do? Like, how do you handle that situation? You know, and. Um, and he, here's the thing, right? And I'm 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 making jokes about it because I, I swear, you know, the old people say sometimes you got to laugh to keep from crying. Yeah. Um, but you know, we we it. You think about Bill Cosby and the fact that a woman won't be believed, but like think about how many children in their own families aren't believed. Mm. Like think about how many um, daughters have had, you know, their mother's boyfriends and cousins and, um, you know, and what happens in families, yes. you know, when something like that happens, yeah. they're not believed. Right. And for girls, um, for, for girls overall, but especially for black girls, you know where they go. They, they don't get protection. They get sent into the criminal justice system. That's the pathway. That's one of the main pathways for for black girls into the criminal justice system. Hmm. So then you take a character like Bill Cosby, who it took 60, like, 60, like literally 60 women, you know, many of whom would have likely given it to Bill, you know, had he just asked for it properly. Um <laughs> Would you know, like this, this dude, you, you know, I, there were a few stories where some of the women were not it, like it wasn't off the table, right? Sure, <laughs> like, sure. you wake up and you know, it's happened already, oh. and it's like, um, 60. Like, can you imagine? Yeah, but that's the same percentage of women, um, black women's blueprint who I mentioned just a second ago talked, uh, they did a survey in the last few years to examine the prevalence of sexual violence. Yeah. And what they found was that about 60% of women under the age of 18, of Black women, had experienced some sort of coercive sexual contact before the age of 18. Wow. 60%. That's 60% of women. If you think about 10 women in your life, at least six of them have experienced sexual violence. Wow. You know, especially like you think about the age of Me Too, mm-hmm. where and I don't want to diminish Me Too, you know, because I it's like I feel like, you know, the work of Me Too has really did. It really changed the national conversation around sexual violence mm-hmm. um, so that it could come into the forefront and so that we could have these sorts of conversations. Um, but there's so many women that are actually left out. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, you know, when you think about Me Too, you don't think about black girls. Hmm. Why do you feel black girls are left out of the Me Too conversation? I think that anytime you put white women and white fragility up front, mm-hmm. then automatically black women take a backseat to that. Okay. And I think that people people cared about what was happening um, with Me Too as it like reemerged mm-hmm. because it was happening to white women. You see what happened when Lupita was like, also me too. And they were like, shut a bitch. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know? So, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but do you think, because the hashtag me too was started by a black woman, correct? Yeah. Tarana Burke, amazing, yeah. fierce advocate for black women and girls. Yeah. And she started hashtag me too to let the, the women and the girls in her life know that the experiences that they had, she had also. Sure. And that there were other people that had those experiences. So 
movement was made for Black girls. I'm sorry. I want to make sure that we carry people along. <clears throat> so you said a phrase, a term that I use often with my friends, but I haven't used in the podcast yet. You talked about in the podcast yet, and you talked about white fragility. Can you talk about what that means to you? So, and you know, this is difficult, right? Because you know, I have friends like I, you know, on every spectrum of the rainbow, and it's like you bring up white fragility, but we're taught to respond to white women's helplessness Mm -hmm. or, you know, black women have been expected to be strong, have been expected to be sexual. Mm -hmm. Um, We haven't had access to like white middle-class notions of femininity at all. Mm -hmm. And so whenever a white girl displays, um, you know, the need for help, it's like we're taught immediately to respond to it. Whereas mm-hmm. black women and black girls, when we have a need, it's like, oh, you're strong. You can handle that, you know? And yeah. I think consequently, it's something that we end up internalizing um, mm-hmm. so that, you know, we actually need help. Not only do we not get help, we don't even seek the help that we need because we expect that we should be able to handle all that we're going through. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think that I, I think that includes some white men too, <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. but I, I understand that point. So, do you think that women of color um, should align more with Times Up? Are aligned more with Times Up, or does it matter? I think so. I think so. Yeah, I like wholeheartedly think so. I think that what we have to do is expand the conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, it shouldn't be just me too if I'm white, um, rich, or middle class. Um, It shouldn't be, you know, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't not have access to me too if I don't identify all of those things. You know, it shouldn't be times up just for men who prey on white women. Right. And I think that that, um, you notice that the Mute R. Kelly um, movement has gained steam um, as of late because of the Me Too movement's willingness to kind of, you know, put some money and put some weight behind it. Mm-hmm. Because those women um, who started the hashtag Mute R. Kelly have been doing that work for years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oftentimes it's just two or three women standing outside um, of a concert venue, you know, to 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 try to raise awareness and to prevent, you know, this man from doing this thing Mm -hmm. to all these women. Can you think of all these, I sound like my grandma, these women's, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) all these women's child. Uh, (laughs) That come from, Um, but it's just, it's baffles me. Can you think about it? It's been over 20 years since the first allegations of abuse um, were alleged against R. Kelly over 20 years. And they've been public as hell. It's not been a secret. Yeah, I mean, it's been the court. Like, it's been, you know, in legal proceedings around them. Um, <clears throat> but I've, I, it's interesting because there have been conversations. And I have, you know, I've been in a, an interesting thought process about this specifically. Because, okay. you know, Robert Kelly is a, is a musician, a singer, and a songwriter. And he's a talented musician. Like, let's just start there. He's, a, he's a, an incredible, like one of the best songwriters ever. And so how do you feel like, what do you feel like the response should be to these, you know, charges and allegations and, you know, even things that are provable as it relates to his, because I think the thing that's been kind of getting lost for me is people understanding what he's done 
or alleged to have, to have done in very clear terms? You know what? But let's start here. It's not that they don't understand. You know, I think that we're giving people too much credit. Okay. They don't care. Let's, <laughs> let's call this thing what it is. Yeah. They do not care what he's done, you know? Because it's like, I, it's like you can't even escape some of the gory details. Like you can click on, uh, you know, you can find a video of that thing really quickly. Yeah, you can. It's that people don't care. And it's that his victims were not white. Right. Like if, if he, do, if, you know, if that video of him, you know, pissing on some person's child was of a white woman, mm-hmm. I, I just don't think it would have gone that far. I agree. But it would it wasn't. And you. there's nothing like, it, it's so funny. There are times that it's like, I, I rarely despair, right? Mm-hmm. But there, there are times when it's like, I, I don't, I can't. Like, you should see the trolls that come out anytime you talk about protecting Black women and girls. Yeah. And the worst part about it is it's not all, it's not like it's all men. Very often it's women and Black women who will, <laughs> they will fight you in the street behind Robert Kelly. Yeah. You know, they will like fight you, physically fight you in the street behind <laughs> talking about Robert Kelly. And it just is so, so sad to me. Yeah. You know, that of all the people out here who can't see that black women and black girls deserve better and that we deserve access to respect and we deserve access to justice, it mm-hmm. should be black women. But that isn't always the case. She like black women are complicit as well. All the way. And, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like I try to, you know, I try to be gentle with us. Right. Because I realize that like all this, you know, we didn't internalize all this racism and patriarchy and misogy, misogynoir overnight. Right. You know, this is like hundreds of years of work that's been done on black women in black communities. So it's like I try to be patient, but it's hard. It's so, yeah. so hard. The other day, this sister told me, you know, she was like, I'm just, un- you know, I don't even understand. You know, it's not like it's young, young girls. <laughs> so <laughs> really? She said it's in all seriousness, you know, and we have to have a conversation about that. Yeah, I think we do have to have that because, I mean, part of the thing that even I make this distinction, when people use use words like, you know, pedophilia. And I'm like, no, that's not pedophilia. Like pedophilia is sex or, you know, people who have sex with prepubescent children. And I, I personally think that there is a need to make that distinction because it's a different, it's a different issue. And it's one that I think, um, it needs to be understood from, from, from scientific and from, you know, psychological perspectives. It's not the same. I don't think the happening inside the brain and so i do think and not to excuse either action they're both wrong and criminal um if you're if you're doing something with a child or something with a a woman you know who is yeah it's plant it's plantains and bananas you know they're from the same family yeah you know it's a little different (laughs) it's a little different it's still you know still from a similar tree right it's harder for people to wrap their brains around these conversations with r kelly and, you know, a 22 or 23 year old woman who, who you know, f- seems to be living with him, you know, of her own choosing. And right. then kind of like, what do you want us to do about that? 
And that's why I feel like this conversation is important to have because just because that's happening, it does not mean the situation is not abusive and manipulative. Yeah, but I also think that people don't understand how sexual violence, how and um, and even sex trafficking, they take a similar form. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm sorry about that. So they mm-hmm. take a similar form. The the thing that people don't recognize is it doesn't. It's not like you meet me. I'm you know I'm 19, and it's like okay. So tell you what, I would also I would like you to come be my sex slave and live in my house and give me your phone and not talk to your family. That's that's not how that works. Right. You, it, it starts off by finding, you know, oftentimes it's finding the girls who are the most isolated, who mm-hmm. are the most vulnerable, mm-hmm. the girls who have the most need. Sometimes that need is economic. Sometimes mm-hmm. that need is emotional and psychological. And mm-hmm. what they do is they groom. There's a process. It's called grooming. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they, may, you know, maybe they're buying you dinner. Maybe they paid a bill that you cannot pay. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they build the trust so that mm-hmm. they can alienate you from your supports first. Mm-hmm. And so then they can victimize you. And mm-hmm. for some pe- for some predators, what they do is they start grooming people from a very young age. Such was the case with Russell Simmons, a similar yeah. thing. I don't think we hear a lot about, you know, the really horrible things that Russell Simmons is accused of. Yeah. I had the opportunity to sit and talk with those women. With mm-hmm. one of those women who detailed for me, you know, just how he did it. And he raped her violently is what she said. Mm. Um, you know, but again, these are black women and we, we don't value black women. And so our first thing, you know, the first thing a brother will tell you is like, you know, but it's like, what if they all lying? And it's like a more victim-centered response. It's like there are more victims than there are accusers. Like, oh. I don't even understand. Like, why immediately would you, like, you know, rush to defend someone accused of such horrible things? Uh, But why? So so in your in your experience and, you know, based on what you've read and and lived through and people you've spoken with, why do you think that is the auto response or the thing that so many people go to initially? Because we hate black women. Mm. Who is we and why do you say that? We we. We as an, I want to, I want to say everybody, like our society, we hate black women. Mm. We think black women are ugly. We think black women are, are, are too tough. We yeah. think that black women, you know, we hate black women for resisting. You know, mm. we hate them for having the audacity to stand up. And I think that. Our society and black women and men, we punish black women for doing it. Mm. That's it. We've internalized all these messages about black female sexuality, about black women being too loose, about black women being too loud. And like in our subconscious, I think that we hate black women. I, I definitely agree with you. I think that there is a lot to be said about that. Um, to that point, when you were talking earlier about R. Kelly, um, I, I reposted a tweet from Kathy Griffin, and I want to just read it for um, a listener who didn't see it. Kathy Griffin tweeted, um, and for those who don't know, she's a comedian who was got in some trouble because she held up a mock head of Trump, and it was a whole thing. You know, uh, Kathy's wild out here in these streets, y'all. <laughs> She said, for 20 years, we've been reading about credible accusations against R. Kelly. For 20 years, we've known that he has settled multiple claims of sexual misconduct. 
For 20 years, we have known he is a sexual predator. Enough. I stand with the women of Time's Up. So hashtag mute R. Kelly. And someone asked her, why do you think it took so long for this to happen? And she said, because his victims are black women and our racist culture does not value their pain as much as, as it does the pain of white women. And I, I was, I mean, for as much as you can be happy about that statement, I was, I was happy to see that she was honest about the reason that it hasn't been, you know, a problem effectively, like why he's still been able to kind of, you know, go on through life without people labeling him as such and then having that be believed and then having there be some response to what people believe about him. Yeah. Yeah. I think Kathy is spot on. Um, I also, it's not lost on me the fact that this white woman says it and then it's like, yeah, you're right, Kathy. When black (laughs) women have been saying it for years. We've been saying it for years. And just like they told Lupita, shut up, bitch. Yes. <laughs> it's Kathy, it's like, retweet, say it again. You know? Yeah. And it's like, I've been saying I've been trying to tell them that. And why, they don't listen to me. And they're not listening. So so speaking to that issue of you know, the believability and viability of the, the positions and stories of Black women... Um, how do we, what can we do to, to change that? I mean, I mean, I think, well, let me ask you this first. What, what does an honest conversation in a public, you know, way look like that gives, that would help people to understand how black women are seen and viewed? Sorry, can you repeat that for me? Yeah. Like what, what would be your, some things you would have said in a public discourse that helps people to understand how black women are, are viewed and, and, that they're not believed because I don't know that people consciously think about that. Um, I think we're socialized and conditioned. And I agree with what you said in terms of how black women are seen as loud and boisterous and angry and, you know, all of that. But how do we have that dialogue in a public way so people can get it? And then we can begin to do whatever you feel like is, is helpful to do to change that. How do we get that changed? You know, in my, like, you know, I have this place in my mind, this imaginary place in my mind that I call the land of infinite resources. So mm-hmm. in the land of infinite resources, I would we all need to have access to black feminism. And mm-hmm. it's like just having access to black feminist writing and black feminist activists and advocates really did give me the language that mm-hmm. I needed. Really to be able to talk about things because I had had these feelings all the time, but you know, before what I would be able to say was that shit is fucked up out here. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's sure. really how I describe that. Um, yeah. But black feminism really does go through and break down the mechanisms by which that happens. It really does talk about the ways in which race intersects with gender um, mm. and, and how you can't separate them at all. Um, yeah. you know, because you think about people would ask you, you know, stuff like, you know, wh- what's more important, you know, your race or yeah. your gender. But at the end of the day, things are both race and they're both gendered and the victims of, um, you know, R. Kelly and the victims of Bill Cosby and the fact that it's taken them so long to achieve justice is directly mm-hmm. connected to both race and gender. 
Mm. And it's like understanding. It's like that black women are doubly, sometimes triply, if they identify as queer, um, you know, or, or, you know, there are just multiple axes of oppression that black women occupy. And I think mm-hmm. being able to really reckon with that and, you know, understanding both our places of privilege, um, yeah. you know, and our oppression. Right. Because when we understand our privilege, then we can go about, you know, doing what we can do to make some changes there. And I think that that's where brothers are. You know, this is where we need brothers to step up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a brother is knocked upside the head um, by the police. Um, you know, who's out there marching? It's black yeah. women with signs. Yeah. Black Lives Matter. That's black women. Black queer women, no less. Yeah. Yes. You sure. know. But you know when <laughs> when you know when Sandra Bland happened, brothers were like, she should have shut the hell up. You know. Yeah. And so it's like understanding oppression, understanding multiple oppression or intersectionality, as some describe it. I think yes. is something that you know you know just having that lens. Um, will allow us to, I think, do better. So, so speaking of intersectionality, which is something I'm super interested in and wrapping my brain around, and it's really helping me to understand, you know, the challenges of, of certain people groups. Um, like thinking about that as a as a woman of color, as a black woman, um, and, I, and I'm asking this question because because people have asked it. Uh, I've heard people ask it, and, and and do you find yourself, uh, you know, are, are, do you identify yourself as woman first or black first, or neither? And which do you find to be more challenging when you have to deal with, you know, just the regular course of your life? That's an interesting question. I always <laughs> identify myself as a black woman. I don't separate the two, ever. Yes. Okay. You know. Because That's what I, I said. Yeah, I, ever. Because I recognize the fact that it's like my blackness affects my experiences as a woman. And it's like mm. my blackness means that I don't have access to the same protections, um, you know, that one might have access to as a woman. Yeah. And it also means that my blackness means that any oppression that one faces as a woman is exacerbated. So, you know, you know, you think about something like equal pay and you recognize that, you know, while white women might make, um, you know, 80 cents on the dollar, black women are going to make 70. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't those numbers aren't right, but they're close, Mm -hmm. you know. And so, you know, it's like that is a perfect example of intersectionality, because if it was gender, we'd make the well. Me and the white woman would make the same. Or yeah, exactly. Or me and the black man would make the same. Or 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 the or the or the you know the the allegations against you know the the Bill Cosby, R. Kelly, Russell Simmons types would have been you know responded to <laughs> as well. Yeah. I think that's a really a really fair point. Right. Um, I want to segue a little bit to kind of the work that work that you're doing and talk to the listeners about. Um, black women incarcerated, like because I don't know if people know what those numbers are, and and then we'll come to how you know to connecting that to, to sexual violence. But but what is the, you know, what is what? Give us a snapshot of what that is like. That story about women, black women being incarcerated. 
Right. So I think that people don't have a tendency to, you know, you think about mass incarceration and those conversations are usually dominated about things that happen to black men and black boys. And don't get me Mm -hmm. wrong. It's not that there shouldn't be attention there at all, because when you think about, um, you know, people who are incarcerated the most, you're often talking about black men and black boys. However, Mm -hmm. women are um, the fastest growing population of people incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And if you think about Mm -hmm. um, children or or girls, because my work focuses on girls, when you think about incarcerated um, girls, you're talking about black girls and native girls overwhelmingly. And native girls Mm -hmm. are such a small, you know, it's like they're disproportionately represented. But when you're talking about, you know, who we're talking about, it's black girls. And the disparities there are so very stark. I wish I could. I, I'm a researcher, so I'm really like sensitive to citing the right statistics. So no, you won't catch me out here in these streets, Ted, telling people the wrong things. But no, <laughs> like three to four times the amount um, of of black girls are incarcerated, you know, compared to their peers. And when you think about the pathways that girls get there. Oftentimes they are crossover youth. And what that means is that they're crossing over from the foster care system. So they're often in the foster care system. Um, they experience disproportionate rates of school suspension um, and expulsion and push out um, due to a variety of things, um, including disproportionate school discipline. Um, yeah, I could go on for days and days and talk about that. Um, but the do you feel like do you feel like these young girls are? I mean, are there are there connections between like education and poverty and you know these types of things as well? So one of the projects that I worked on recently, um, before I did this work, was um a work called, uh, a project called the Equality Indicators Project, and one of the things. Um, that I learned in that project is that um, this all forms of disadvantage are are uh, affected by each other. Mm-hmm. So you know, mm-hmm. and to give you an example, um, when you think about the criminal justice system. Oftentimes, the people mm-hmm. in the like so perfect perfect example. I just read some numbers um, earlier today about mass incarceration in Pennsylvania and um, juvenile justice mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. Fifty percent of the kids who go through the system there are children who mm-hmm. come from single parent homes. Right? That's not an indictment of single mm-hmm. mothers, but what that means is that single mothers often don't have access access to 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 not only equal pay but dual incomes, yeah. right? So they're less resourced. Yeah. When you're less resourced, often you have to live further away from your job. So that means that you don't get to mm. spend the same amount of time with your children. You know, if you're a working parent, you don't mm. get to you don't get to check their homework and see where they are because you spend more time commuting. You know, spending sure. more time commuting and not worrying about your kid, you know, not seeing about your kids often means you have worse health outcomes, right? And so Mm. it's like, 
all of these things are related to each other. Um, I think the school part is really important. It means that usually black and brown families don't live in communities um, that have good schools. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and so they don't have good schools and they also don't have access to teachers that have experience. Um, I seen a study mm-hmm. recently that said that the majority of kids in um, in like under resourced areas had teachers who mm-hmm. had their jobs for three years or less. So we don't those kids don't have access to experienced teachers. Um, you know, teachers who are trained mm-hmm. in implicit bias. Um, there, there was also a study recently mm-hmm. that said that um, by Georgetown Poverty Law Center, I think it is. Maybe, maybe I'm putting the poverty in there. Mm-hmm. I think it's. I know that it's Georgetown Law um, that talked about the adultification of black mm-hmm. girls and how black girls are seen as older and more responsible. Um, uh, yeah. more precocious, um, a lot of negative things from earlier on. So teachers respond yeah. to them differently. And as a result, it pushes them out of school into the justice system. So that was a long-ass answer to your question. <laughs> no, but it's, it's fine because I want people to understand, like, what that pathway looks like, you know, like, and, and, and how is that connected or how is sexual assault, how does it influence those paths, Um you know, and when you def- and how would you define that? I mean, I know it may not be one thing, but kind of give people an understanding of, you know, what you mean when you say sexual assault. You know, impacts that kind of pathway to, right. to prison. Yeah, so I'll I'll use an example from my own life, right? So for me, I was raped at mm-hmm. eight years old, um, but not someone in my family, mm-hmm. um, a person who broke into our home. So it was a very violent thing. Um, it happened on mm. like a Saturday night. On the Monday, I was back mm. at school. Like, like nothing had happened. I, what? I, it was like you know. I think our our families are not equipped to deal with such trauma, and so what we do is try to create normalcy. Just you know, go back to school. So I went back to school. <clears throat> I didn't have. I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about it. Again, until I must have, I was an adult. But in between that time, just thinking about the prevalence of sexual violence, I was looking back on it the other day. Um, in between that time, I, there were at least five other instances where someone had some inappropriate sexual contact with me, who, you know, either tried to have sex with me mm. or groped me or you know, I, I was, you yeah. know, someone attempted to rape yeah. me um, another time. And mm-hmm. there were times in my life where, you know, there was, I'm sure it was depression. There were times that I didn't want to go to school. Um, it really did impact me in ways that I wasn't yeah. able to language as a child. Um, but I was able to start to act out, you know, and you start mm-hmm. to use your voice and to say no and to, I'm not going to school and I'm angry and I'm going to fight. Um, and a lot of those behaviors I had kind of coupled with the fact that my mom herself had been, you know, in relationships where there were domestic violence. I, I was led into the juvenile justice system. And so, it, you know, you think about it and it's not necessarily a yeah. direct path. But what it means is that oftentimes black girls are 
pushed out of their homes. Their homes are inhospitable. They find themselves in the foster care system. And, you know, the numbers are stark. I don't have them in front of me, of course, but girls who've experienced um, uh, sexual violence are several times more likely to find themselves in the juvenile justice system. And it's like, while that line is indirect, it just, it's a ripple effect Mm. that causes, you know, so many other negative things to happen. You know, I think sexual violence itself is so traumatic. Yeah. I, a woman that I know does this project called the incorrigibles where she um, reconnects people who were at the New York state training school for girls, um, you know, and their stories. And she tries to, it's a public memory project that just looks back on why those girls were in the juvenile justice system in the like twenties and thirties and, you know, what things we need to learn from it. And she mm-hmm. just told me how she was meeting with a 77 year old woman who was raped at the school and at this, she's in therapy, this woman who's 77, you know, wow. so when we think about just the lifelong consequences wow. of sexual violence, they don't go away just because you get older or because you don't talk about them. Yeah. Um, you know, but for, and you know, some people yeah. with resources often, you know, have access to therapy. They have access to, you know, a good schools and ways to, you know, make better lives for themselves. But such isn't always the case for black women and for black girls. You know, it's, it's, it's um, that's really like traumatic to even hear, um, to think about, you know, having to endure that and not being able to understand it and process it. And then just, you know, just kind of say, somebody saying just, you know, kind of just basically act like it. It didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, act like you're not bleeding, <laughs> you know, yeah. blood everywhere, but just act like it's, mm-hmm. it's all normal. And I think even in my own family dynamic, <clears throat> there are stories of that. Like my grandmother has told me stories of her sister being sexually assaulted by their stepfather and them running away at, I think they were 13 and six, 13 and 16 or 13 and 14. And like, yeah. you know, the way that they had to strategize getting away, like literally, literally having to run away. And, um, it's, it's, it's really a lot to think through. Like I have a, I had a great, um, aunt who just completely disassociated herself with the family in large part because of that, because she was sexually assaulted and she felt like my great grandmother didn't protect her. Right. You know, and, and what's interesting is I, I never talked to my great-grandmother about it. She's passed away now. <clears throat> but, but part of what I think is that at, the, at least at that particular time, because women were, a lot of women, you know, were not independent and didn't have jobs and skills and, you know, anything. Some of them felt trapped inside of those relationships, um, you know, where they had eight, nine, ten children. <laughs> so they were kind of like what am I going to do? You know, and I, and I don't, I don't think that's, you know, I, I don't want to like Monday morning quarterback. I don't think that was the right choice. Mm-hmm. You know, but a lot of women did that then. And I'm wondering, you know, if we're in an age now where those things, are, I, I mean, I mean, I know those things are still happening. Um, do you feel like we're more than we're addressing it more? Is it being handled better or is it, you know, much of the same? I think as much of the same. But I also think that that presents us with an opportunity now, especially as a national conversation around Mm -hmm. Me Too, Time's Up, and Mute R. Kelly have have, have come to the forefront. It really does present us with an opportunity to reexamine what happens in our communities and how we're going to respond to it. 
what happens in our families and how we're going to respond to it. So when I tell people that, oh, no, 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 what you will not do is play stuff in the name of love at my house or anywhere where my ears can hear it, that that is a conscious and political choice Mm -hmm. to say, no, black women and girls matter more than my desire, you know, to Mm. do why do you feel like that? Why do you feel like that's an issue? Like to play, and so so let me without and I'll you know quote unquote play devil's advocate. So these are things that he's creating that are art, right? Which are, are an extension of him, I guess, but not him per se. And if these are songs that are art, because <laughs> I'm a, I'm an art creator, so I'm thinking from that you know part of myself. Like there might be people who disagree with things I do or choices I make or things I've said, um, but but should that prevent them from listening to my art? I'm one who doesn't think that you can separate the art from the hmm. I just, I just don't. You know, as as someone who considers himself a frustrated artist, like I sketch and draw and paint, mm-hmm. um, I recognize how deeply I put myself in the art mm-hmm. and how the art comes through my own eyes mm-hmm. and my own experiences and my own emotions that day. Yeah. And I think back how. Sick ass R. Kelly calls himself the Pie Piper, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I'm like, so yeah, like I don't understand where the cognitive dissonance around this shit is. <laughs> and it's like, um, yeah, do, do we remember what the Pie Piper was doing? Yeah, no, like, I think so. Y'all, this ain't hard, you know. Right. And it's like I value black women and girls above his art. I understand. And I'm judging you if you don't. (laughs) (laughs) No, I understand. I understand both of those positions. I just, I know that, you know, like my favorite songwriter of all time is Stevie Wonder. Like, and I mean, you know, he's, you know, I don't, I don't, don't, he doesn't have any of those types of allegations. Sad, sad, sad day. If we had to find out that that's how Stevie Wonder was moving, but yeah. you know what, Stevie Wonder could get it too, you know. Right. Everybody. Could, I mean, I, I agree that no one. I don't think any person who perpetuates violence or you know inappropriate behavior, trauma on other people, is above critique. And you know whatever backlash comes with that, and I think people have should have the right to choose you know, from, on a personal level, if they want to support that person or not. Yeah, definitely. I, I, this is what I tell people, right? And this is what I told one brother who I almost had to lay hands on in my house for mm-hmm. defending R. Kelly in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I tried to give a brother a minute, you know, to get his life together and send him some, like, subliminal messages on how much danger he was in. <laughs> and I said, listen here brother, you know, and I cited to him that statistic that, you know, at least 60% of black women, and again, I think that number is grossly estimated, have experienced Mm -hmm. sexual violence before the age of 18. Mm. What message does it send to the people in your life, to the people in this room, the ones who like won't admit that they've gotten through this because they know that they're not going to be believed. They know that they're not going to be supported and they know that they're not going to be protected. What mm. message are you sending to them when you privilege mm. R. Kelly, when you privilege Bill Cosby over their truths? Mm. 
You know, what message does it send to them? And what does it say about you? Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Look inside, do that work. Figure out what's in there and understand the depths of your hatred towards black women, because that's what it is. I think that's that's a powerful statement. And I also think that um, the way that I have kind of addressed it is... (sighs) You know, I ask people to think about someone they love and know and what their response would be, you know, if if these if these accusations, if you will, and the things that have, that have gone to court were in reference to someone you love. If it was your daughter or your sister or your niece or your friend, like, would you still want to play, play his music, <laughs> you know, or go to his concerts or support him? And I don't, I don't know that most people would. I think they'd be... Like, no, I can't. I'm outraged by it. So I do understand that point. I mean, I, I, I genuinely understand both sides of it. Um, but I guess I guess one has to determine, you know, what's more important to yeah. them and, and how they will, you know, live that out loud when it comes to people who have done things that are, you know, traumatic and horrific. Um versus like because i think people will some people will couch this argument in the you know everybody's done something wrong i don't agree with you know everybody anybody on everything kind of language um which you know which people have the right to do but i don't only black people are doing that because you know what harvey weinstein shut down kevin spacey down r kelly living his whole best black life (laughs) You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. You see, I have feelings about this. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you're exactly right. Like there is a different thing. Um, uh, You know, I think that when you do have those conversations, um, I don't know, you see where people are. And I do, I don't know that I've had, and this is, you know, this is going to be anecdotal, but I don't know that I've had a lot of conversations with people who really think about women from a, you know, feminist or womanist perspective who would continue mm-hmm. to support like an R. Kelly, who don't understand why it is important when people are already marginalized and dealing with the intersectionality of those things to really make a definitive statement in a total expression of their life to say, I'm not going to support this in any way or support anybody who, who, because I think that in order to do that, a couple of things have to be present. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I do think there has to be some hate of women in order to yeah. perpetuate that trauma on them. And I also think knowing a little bit about R. Kelly's upbringing and, you know, being introduced to sex at eight and, you know, being being sodomized effectively as an eight year old boy and being made to photograph people having sex, that he has a lot of unprocessed trauma himself. But as an adult, you have a responsibility to deal with that. <laughs> right. Yeah, well that's the other part of the discussion that I don't think that we we often have. And I've said this too when I when I'm talking about R. Kelly, is that um you know, we don't give black boys, we don't give boys in general a space to be victims. No. And I think what happens is, you know, when that old adage that hurt people hurt people is that victims themselves, not all victims, but many victims then often, you know, 
perpetrate sexual violence on other people. And so, you know, when you think about kind of this unaddressed trauma and like what happens to unaddressed trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that so much of our like, so much of our exposure has mm-hmm. to do with the fact that we don't un- we don't address the trauma that happens to men and we don't as- we don't create a space for them to be able to be victims automatically for bl- it's like black boys can't be victims you're just either you uh weren't a victim or you're gay <laughs> like that's yeah, yeah. what we do to black boys and i think that that is so horribly you know it's just i just can't believe we do that to other human beings how do you think that translates into relationships with people who identify as heteronormative? Like when you're raising black boys who eventually turn into men and you don't allow them to be victims at all or to be seen as, you know, what might be defined by some as soft or, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of forced to have this pseudo masculine expression and toughness. How does that or does that play into abusive situations with women? Well, I think it totally plays into it. You know, some people call that uh, toxic masculinity. And I always say that toxic Mm. masculinity not only affects women, it affects men and it affects their, their, their access to help, you know, happy and healthy life and a full range of emotions. You know, I think as women, you know, Mm. have, you know, oftentimes we complain about the fact that it's like, he doesn't understand. He doesn't want to talk, you know? And it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> if he does though, it's like, that's just gay, my nigga, you know? Like, right. <laughs> you know? And it's like, you come yeah. on, we can't have it both ways here. And it's like, you know, what? it's like, I feel like black women are the standard bearer. You know, we, we hold up a lot of the horrible bad shit out here. You know, and it's like I have to pull my sisters to the side. Like, we got to have a side meeting, sisters. Like, you know, what are we doing? You know, I know many women who would be like, nah, 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 that shit's shit's gay. And you're like, so, sis, you know. Yeah, so you have that now. You have this, you know, this man who's socialized a certain way and women who are socialized in other ways. And then you have these roles, right, these gender roles that they're expected to perform. Um, yeah, internalization of those. It's one thing to be socialized away, but there's another thing to buy into it and then to perpetuate it. Mm. And how do you feel like those those roles um, perpetuate the objectification of black women? Man, you went deep. <laughs> you went in there, and you know what problem is? You know, I get, I would get all the way in on my black woman, black feminist soapbox, and be like, because you see, but I think just to pull it back and to make it more accessible for people who maybe that isn't their regular framework, or because they think that it's like so many people actually do buy into these gender roles, mm-hmm. you know, and they think, oh no, the man he should cut the grass, you yeah. know what I mean? Or oh, no, 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 you know, we go out, that brother's supposed to pay, sure. you know. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, it's like you can buy into whatever model you want to buy into, but you got to know what that comes with, you mm. know? And it's like, you know, if you buy into those things, you know, if I feel like, you know, I, because this is the problem with, with bringing these things up, because ultimately I, I go back to to capitalism, right? <laughs> it's That's like... Why. Down the rabbit hole and into the weeds. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, you know, when we start to make our relationships, like, 
you know, and those divisions of labor is it's transactional. I feel like at the end of the day, it's like, again, I, I, I feel myself going into the weeds. So I'm going to stop myself. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I do want to, I mean, I, I don't think that's a bad place to be in terms of understanding, you know, cause, cause I, I, I said this before, you know, and I had a conversation with several women, specifically these were black women and who we were talking about equality and equity and feminism and all these ideas. And one of them was adamant about the fact that if she went on a date with a guy that he was going to pay and which is probably her right to, you know, make that choice. And I asked her, I said, do, do you understand how that might create an immediate power dynamic? Yeah. Yeah. And because I mean, so can you have equity, equality, and chivalry? Right? I mean, can those coexist? You Well, I think chivalry is just, is ultimately in a rooted in a power dynamic that privileges men. Um, but yeah. I feel like if we change that, if we just change chivalry to kindness, right? And it's like, mm. I just want a partner who's kind. You know? Mm. And it's like, it's like that kindness isn't because they're supposed to do something because of my gender, because they want to mm-hmm. do, do it to care for me. You know? Yeah. And I think that men should want to have access to that just as much as women. You know, And for mm. me, that caring sometimes looks like I got that. I got that bill, you know, or that caring. I yes. sent my partner, who's a man, flowers. Mm-hmm. I've sent him flowers at work, you sure. know? And so I think that it's like, we have to change our whole framing around that because that gender shit never did work for black people, especially. That's so interesting that you say that because there are so many people, especially people who identify you know, as, as evangelical or conservative Christian black folks who will completely disagree with you and will say that, you know, society has, you know, all functioning societies have had that. That's the blueprint. That's what we should be doing to do anything else. Mm-hmm. is going to disrupt the family and, you know, won't. Right. Won't. Except for that's not true. And all functioning societies not have that. But Western societies, especially, you know, ones who involved into capitalist frameworks have had that. And that's why it's important to know your damn history. Yeah. You know, because how do you, and, and you feel like capitalism is, Capitalism, it's like, you know, it's like the gender roles are ultimately in service to capitalism. Mm -hmm. You know, having access to female sexuality is ultimately in service to capitalism, Mm -hmm. you know. And so, you know, I think that, you know, racism itself was in service to capitalism. So I think that once we recognize that, that we never did have access to that in the first damn place. Um, right. You know, we could create something that actually does work for us. Mm-hmm. So that does mean we need to deconstruct a lot of these ideas and then figure out what makes sense. That's the word. Yes. You know, because what yeah. I do is like I get into the weeds and then I start cussing Ted. I'm like, you know what? Also, <laughs> and this is some bullshit. And you're like, you have to deconstruct these things. That is exactly what we have to do. <laughs> Yeah, I think having those convers- these conversations are so important because I am not fine. It's kind of like people who make these assumptions about any group. Like I have been, I have found myself with, in my interpretation, 
more progressive ideas about women and feminism than some women. Yeah, and that's so very frustrating, isn't it? Yeah, it is, actually. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for, like, supporting me in that, because you know what? It's like I get to where I want to just tear my brains out, you know? And I'm like, sister, yeah. like, you know, I, I like to... I like my Cardi B. I like to look cute. You know, I didn't um, stop shaving my arms, you know, because I identify as a as a feminist and as a womanist, you know. Um, but what it does mean is that I recognize my value and I demand that other people recognize it, too. Yeah. And that just be so. So let me ask you this. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, sexual violence and what that has looked like for you specifically and. In general, how, you know, 60 something percent of women, probably higher women of color have experienced that, will experience that. Um, what do you think that what, what are some things that we should do or conversations we should have with men and boys um, who I think are the majority of the perpetuators of these, these acts of, of violence? Like how what do we need to do to change the thinking about how they see women, how they engage women and you know, is that a path to reducing those numbers? I think so. I think first and foremost, we have to have conversation with both boys and girls around consent, around Mm -hmm. what consent looks like and who's able to give consent. Right. Um, Because Mm -hmm. I think that so many Mm -hmm. of the girls that are in the system and sometimes boys don't even see themselves as victims of sexual violence because they think that they have the ability to give consent because they look like women. Mm. You know, you're speaking to age, age and maturity. Yeah. And so having conversations with not just older kids, but younger kids around consent, you know, and about making the choices around their body, around, you know, respecting children's choices. You know, children say that they don't want to hug that friend or that man or that woman. Don't make them. them about consent and let them exercise consent. Right. That's really an important lesson. Um, I, I wanted to, um, before we wrap, I did want to kind of talk a little bit about, um, things that, that we can, well, I guess things that you feel like, um, maybe some things that men should think about differently or, or listen to and hopefully think about differently as it relates to, um, the objectification of, of women and women of color specifically, like what are some things maybe you feel like men don't understand or don't get? Um, and maybe you can help, help them to um, help enlighten them or help them to see you and other women like in, in as human beings as opposed to objects. Right. Well, um, one thing that I'm thinking about because I did read that article about DJ Khaled um, and his fat ass out in the streets. Um, <laughs> and y'all, I say that with love because I'm a fat girl. Um, right. <laughs> all bodies are beautiful except DJ Collins because he refuses to give his spouse cunnilingus. Right. Um, I just, it's right there is the thing. Um mm-hmm. You think about it and you're like, just something as simple as like, oh no, there's his excuse was they're different. They're different rules for men. 
And it was like, mm-hmm. you know, I I pay for this house, so basically you have to give me head and then just be out here in these streets suffering, you know, without access to a proper sexual experience. <laughs> you know, I think, because I think that, you know, I think, I think if men could really understand the totality of possibilities that are available in vaginas. You see, this is what happened with like, and it's like, we have a good understanding of just the complete realm of possibilities of what the vagina yes. can do, right? And sure. I'm serious. I'm joking, but I'm also serious, right? But But I feel like listening to you right now as a man, does that perpetuate ideas of objectification? No, 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 no. Okay. No, no, no. no, no. Because you know why? As a man, you're only looking at the vagina for what it can do for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hear that. That's it. I hear that. For what that, and that's just only a small fraction of what the vagina can do. Yeah. It can do so many magical things. Yeah. Um, for women, and 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 the funny thing is, like the actual, you know, when you think about, you know, there are like millions of nerve endings in a clitoris Mm -hmm. and then and the fact is it's not just there it's actually shaped like that you know you that symbol that the female symbol it's Mm -hmm. shaped like that so it's wrapped it wraps all the way around and it's like it's some crazy crazy mystical magical stuff if you don't know what that looks like please google it (laughs) Like, like straight away google the nerves in the vagina and Please, you must do this and see the visual, right? Yeah. Women need to do this too because most of us did not know these things and how it works. And it will like, it, you know, for, for men, it's going to bring your partners immense joy. For women, your life is going to change. But also, like, once we, it's like once we stop with this, like, one-dimensional view of the vagina, I feel like we mm-hmm. can expand this. <laughs> and I think that only happens through conversations like this. I think what? that one of the reasons I told you, you know, you know, offline, like just to speak freely and say what it is that you would normally say, because I mean, these are <laughs> because these are real I conversations. Back, <laughs> no, we real conversations with real people, you know, who are dealing with real things. And I think that that's an important conversation. When I saw the, now the DJ Khaled comment was, I think it was an older comment, but, um, I do think that I don't know that he's changed his position, but more right. importantly, I understand. I mean, and we all know that he's not the only person who thinks like that. Like, and I think that, you know, these ideas of, you know, women being lesser and not equal to, and, um, you know, if you grew up in the church space, you know, women are to be, you know, obedient and submissive and, yes. you know, all, and I just think that if you have that type of thinking, I don't know how you could see a woman. I don't know how you could have a relationship, a heteronormative one, where the man is the head, the leader, the woman is submissive, and you see that as, and you see her as fully human and fully adult. Yeah, well, these are the same views that said that, you know, women couldn't be ministers, you know, and some of the most powerful ministers I know are women. Agreed. You know, so it's like, you know, I think that there's something about the fact that we have the ability to 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 review and to reject. 
Mm. You know, we have, we can take those things that make sense and we can reject those that don't. And Mm -hmm. then we can recreate. Yeah. We got three R's. We can review, we can reject, and we can recreate. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think this is so powerful, like (laughs) incredible. Um, How can people find out more about the Vera Institute um, and can they support it or like what? Should people know about it? Yeah. So Google, um, so the initiative to end girls incarceration um, in New York City, um, it's been going on for about a year. We just got funding to Mm -hmm. expand to additional sites. And so we got 16 applications um, from a really diverse um, set of municipalities across the country who are interested in expanding um, um, with us and, and and working on ending incarceration in their jurisdictions. Um, so that work is ongoing. Um, also, mm-hmm. um, I would say look up Black Women's Blueprint, um, especially now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really relevant to the conversations that we've been having um, about sexual violence and how to support um, black women in your life, the black women um, survivors in your life. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can follow me on Twitter. I am Shonda Chapman B on Twitter. Okay, we're going to put it in the notes, but spell it for people who are listening. Maybe yeah, at Shonda, S H A W N D A Chapman, C H A P M A N B. Okay. Are you on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat? I'm on Instagram and Facebook. I'm on all of those things. Shonda Chapman Brown. Okay, perfect. Um, well, I, I want to... Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Anything else you want to tell people? Yeah, this has been a wonderful conversation. Oh. And and before we go, I do have a question that needs um, some answers. Sure. Uh, we talked about you never having seen the five heartbeats. That's a plot. <laughs> Really? <laughs> what's happening? Did you go back and revisit? I don't understand what's I, going on in your life. I know. I still have not seen <laughs> in its entirety. I know everybody is probably looking at their whatever device they're listening to. Like, it's a whole new view. I'm like, bruh, what? <laughs> All these references out here. You know, you don't understand. Five, five, five. You know? I know. I'm like, what's that? 15? <laughs> disappointed, man. I'm disappointed. No. I, but I will fix that. I'm going to fix it for everybody listening. Probably by the time this airs, um, <laughs> I would have seen it. That is, that's the plan. That's the plan. So <laughs> <laughs> um, appreciate your um, your insight, your transparency, your knowledge, sharing your own experiences. Um, because I think that's so important to the validity of conversations and to give people context and, you know, really humanize uh, dialogue like this for folks. Understand that it's stats and, you know, numbers like these are real people being affected and people are really living through these situations. And we're we're talking about, you know, people as famous as, as Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein and other people. But we're not talking about, you know, the unknown, unnamed girl who lives in, you know, in Best Style, who lives, well, I don't know if poor people live in Best Style anymore, mm-hmm. or who, <laughs> who lives in, you know, whatever impoverished community in the country 
who who doesn't have a platform and doesn't have, you know, maybe even people around her who who can who she can talk to and who she can trust yeah. um, to conversation. And those are the people that I really want us um, to to try and help and to help to give to support organizations like the one you're working for uh, and the other one you mentioned, so that we can you know really shine the light on these situations and and bring these women and girls of color into you know visibility because i just feel like what happens is they're not visible That's right. and and we have, we have these anecdotals you know we have the success of people like oprah and you know jada and whoever else and then people kind of feel like they are the representation for black women and they are the exception they are not yeah, that's the right and then before it's like i just that that made me think i know recent, soon there'll be another case there'll be another hearing for centoya brown and you know centoya was the girl who got sentenced to life after um defending mm-hmm. herself and killing um her pimp it was her pimp who was violent against her and the, mm-hmm. the child got sent to life and she was lured into that relationship as a child and now um, there's a clemency hearing coming up um, in the next week or two. So I think people that don't know about Centoya should Google. They should use the Google. And, you know, mm-hmm. there should be some outrage there, you know, around what's happening. And, you know, call who you need to call, do, share the story, you know, be informed about it. You know how old she is now? I don't know how old she is now. Okay. Um, please look up her story. Um, uh, Centoya C Y N T O I A Centoya Brown. Um, and check yeah. that out. And we would love to, um, um, have you back. I mean, at some point in time, I mean, it's so much happening. Um, we're going to try to schedule it, but this has been an amazing conversation for me. Um, I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed it as well. Um, they will be. Yeah, I won't curse as much next time, though. <laughs> they might like that. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. will see in the comments. That's what we're <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate your time and input. Um, I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. All right. You too. Bye now.